لهم حديد ونار لهم حديد ونار وهم من القش أضعف Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual Podcast, where we study authoritarianism and the strategies and tactics that authoritarian leaders use, as well as how best to resist. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and this week I've been thinking about Egypt, specifically the protests that have been happening for a little bit over a week. They are the first major national protest movement since probably 2013, and despite a lot of cynicism, from Egypt watchers about whether they'd continue and whether we'd see the promised Friday protests, we did. Large volumes of them spread across the country. And I think there's a list of lessons that we can say we've learned, both about Egypt and the region. Firstly, people are desperate and they're furious. Sisi took power in 2013 by committing the biggest massacre in modern Egyptian history. He killed at least a thousand peaceful protesters in the streets in broad daylight, and since then he's jailed over 40,000 political prisoners, built at least 19 new prisons to house them, and those prisons are massively over capacity. Prisoners have died from torture, mistreatment, and neglect, and their family members are even suffering retaliation. Uh, With Egypt in this state, protesters wouldn't put themselves at risk and go to the streets unless they were desperate and unable to put up with things the way they are anymore. The fact that people are shows the extent of their disillusionment, resentment, and desperation. Secondly, the Sisi regime is clearly terrified. In the last week alone, about 2,300 people have been rounded up and jailed. Uh, That number includes retired politicians and political leaders, activists, award-winning lawyers, but even people as young as 15. Soldiers have been out on the streets in a massive show of force. On Friday, they shut off all access to Tahrir Square, and they've been stopping people on the streets and searching their phones for evidence of any kind of dissent or intentions to protest. The government clearly feels incredibly threatened by the protests, despite people writing them off, and is determined not to let them get out of hand, indicating that they think that that's a real possibility. They understand point one, that people are desperate. Thirdly, nobody saw these protests coming. Nobody is on record as saying there's there's imminent unrest coming in Egypt. And even after they started, everybody wrote them off as small, isolated, unlikely to spread, and said that basically the climate is too repressive for anything like this to happen now. Even we believed that. Uh, But this shows a disconnect between people outside the country analyzing what's going to happen and how the people really feel. 2011 should have already taught us this lesson. Predict things at your peril. Just as nobody in December 2010 would have said, Within nine months, at least three Arab leaders would be deposed and others toppling. Egypt's gone from the political equivalent of the twilight zone, with all dissent and activism wiped out and nothing happening at all, to 100 degrees within a single month. Um, The fragility of these regimes means that they spend years creating an impression of strength before suddenly collapsing in one go after a black swan event. So don't write anything off. The same is true with other regional regimes as well. The Hirak movement in Morocco has been going sporadically for over a year. Mass resentment is boiling over into political protests in Jordan, and earlier this month the government had to resort to brute force to shut down a teacher's protest against the cost of living. The whole region is a tinderbox, and these frustrations and aspirations have not disappeared. 
and they can reemerge at any moment. People have been claiming that the Arab Spring was over or that it failed, but Sudan and Algeria earlier this year told us everything that we need to know about that interpretation. Anyone betting against the reemergence of a widespread popular movement for democracy in the Arab region is going to end up looking like an idiot sooner or later. The next lesson is that there will always be more young protesters. The generation which led the 2011 protests was not at the forefront of the protests this time. In fact, they mostly weren't even present. They're either dead or in jail or in exile or broken by torture and trauma. Many of them uh, were among the cynics online writing off um, these events. These protesters are younger. Um, It's a whole new generation, many of whom weren't even old enough to participate in 2011. Many people, you know, between the ages of 18 and 25, over 50% of Egypt currently is under the age of 25, and it's getting younger every year. There's a demographic bulge on the side of this movement. There's a baby boom happening in the Arab world. And this young generation, what can Sisi do? Is he going to kill off half of Egypt's population? Is he going to imprison an entire generation? Half of Egypt is 50 million people. No matter what kind of repression they use, they can't squash these resentments forever. They'll always boil back up. And with the ever younger uh, demographic profile of the population, the space between these waves of unrest is only going to get shorter every time. How long can they fight, particularly now that the fear barrier is gone? Um, This is going to go on indefinitely, and the repression they're using is unsustainable. There's no civil society which can relieve some of the anger, or even absorb it and provide a cushion, or even provide warning signs, because there's no freedom of speech, there's nobody to... there are no indicators when things are reaching a crisis point. The next lesson is that these regimes keep creating their own problems. This current wave of protests began when a former military contractor called Muhammad Ali, who was himself involved in massive corruption, came out with a series of videos exposing it and revealing the mismanagement of state funds that the generals are involved in. The regime's own greed and avarice, in other words, was so intense that it caused a backlash among even people who are complicit. And what they've done with Wa'il Ghanim is another example of them creating their own problems. If you followed 2011, you know that Wa'il Ghanim is one of the biggest names of that year. He was an activist who was all over the media, and he uh, he created the We Are All Khalid Saeed Facebook page, which uh, is credited with starting the revolution. But he's been in retirement for years, burnt out by the failure of the movement. He's living in the U.S. and keeping well clear of politics, uh, you know, just focusing on himself and his family. And the regime dragged him back in, kicking and screaming out of the retirement when they tried to clumsily coerce him into being an informant and then raided his family's home in Egypt and confiscated his entire family's passports, terrified his mother, and kidnapped his brother Hazim Ghanim. Uh, And Hazim is by all accounts apolitical. Uh, He hadn't said anything, he hadn't done anything. They just took him for leverage. And now Wa'il is on a mission to draw the attention of the world, and he sees no choice but to resist the regime with all his abilities in order to save his brother. There was no need for that. They created this headache for themselves. And that dynamic is common across the region. Probably the most prominent example is Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia's crown prince of self-owns. When he started the Yemen intervention in 2015, the Houthis were a tribal secessionist movement based in the northern mountains who had AK-47s. 
after four years of his campaign to eliminate them, they're in possession of intercontinental ballistic missiles and drones capable of striking airports and oil facilities across the entire length of Saudi Arabia. That's jeopardizing the Aramco IPO, which is what his economic plan and his Vision 2030 is entirely built upon. And that's the entire foundation of MBS's rule, diversifying the income sources of the economy in order to future-proof it. And it's a problem that he's created entirely for himself by creating ungoverned spaces for Houthis to spread into, destroying the country, creating grievances which help radicalization, and generally creating a fertile space for Iran's influence to spread and grow. And he did the same with the, the Jamal Khashoggi tragedy. Jamal never wished to be an icon. He was a loyalist who rejected the label of dissident, and he simply wanted to write his columns, which contained only mild criticism couched in reaffirmations of loyalty, until the last year of his life. And a year ago this week, MBS had him brutally chopped up and murdered in a Saudi consulate, which meant that he didn't even have plausible deniability about it, and he turned himself into a pariah and turned Jamal into a worldwide symbol for the repression of journalists the free speech crisis in the Arab world, and the monstrous viciousness of MBS. Entirely self-inflicted wound. The bottom line is these regimes are their own worst enemies, and they continue to create problems for themselves. Every countermeasure they put in place blows up in their faces, but they can't stop. It's who they are. The next lesson is that the regime, and others like it, are structurally unstable. Sisi's regime is facing a crisis of legitimacy because they're entirely incapable of fulfilling the responsibilities that are required of them in order to be regarded as legitimate governments. He promised a strong Egypt and he promised his people stability and a good livelihood. But all he's done is loot from the already poor to line the pockets of generals and their cronies as the economy spirals. He's decimated the middle class and even the elites have turned against him because of how difficult he's made the economic climate. Sisi's personal legitimacy seems wounded. He's never minded being called a dictator. To him, that's just synonymous with being a strong ruler, which is what he aspires to. But he does very much mind being called a thief. And now, that's what Muhammad Ali's videos have done. They've normalized the description of Sisi as a thief, and everybody in Egypt can see it. The reason those videos have been so damaging and those accusations is because they've turned his own base against him. People who didn't really care for the Muslim Brotherhood, don't really care for these liberal ideals. They just want to, you know, um, get their stability back and live their lives. And now they're out on the streets. There's this really poignant video of a woman who, you know, she sounds like she's a former CC supporter, which is, um, you know, all the more poignant. But she's just in the streets yelling, how can he be building palaces whilst we're eating out of dumpsters? I don't see how Sisi's going to survive this. He may hang on. We already knew he's never again going to reach the high point of his popularity in 2013-14 when he was celebrated by a cult of nationalism. But now it seems like he's a liability even to his own establishment, which is what's fueling the ubiquitous rumors about the military planning to replace him and undermining him. The next lesson is that for all of their wealth and power, the UAE and Saudi Arabia cannot stop this. They've been spearheading the counter-revolution, the, the regional movement to fight the possibility of the emergence of Arab democracy 
ever since 2013. They bankrolled Sisi's coup, they probably helped him plan it, but they certainly provided billions in aid afterwards to shore up his regime. They've prepared aid packages of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars for Jordan and Kuwait when they were threatened with protests and uh, they couldn't get the economy under control. They've intervened in Yemen. They've backed a warlord and fueled a civil war in Libya. They propped up Omar al-Bashir with billions in Sudan, uh, giving him regular cash injections for him to keep the country crawling along, and yet he fell anyway. We often think of the Gulf regimes as being omnipotent. Um, They're so powerful. They have the propaganda. They have the economies. They have the international relations. They have military support. But they're actually swimming against the tide of history, and no matter what they do, it always comes back to this. They can't prevent the region from the path it's going to end up on. They can only delay it with destruction. And the last lesson is that there is still hope for something different. Using fears of a serious scenario has gotten old. It's the bogeyman that they've been using for years. Every time there's the threat of protests, they tell their people, don't do this or you'll end up like Syria. Uh, But Algeria and Sudan both showed that it doesn't work anymore, and now Egypt just emphasizes that. Massive sectarian civil wars aren't caused by protests, they're caused by massively repressive, intolerant government crackdowns against dissent. And the protesters know this. They know that it's not their actions that could turn the country into Syria, it's the government's. And Tunisia just held the first round of uh, its presidential elections two weeks ago. Open, free and fair elections in which the Tunisian people got to watch presidential debates live on television. They got to see the candidates asking for their votes. They got to see them grilled on policy priorities, uh, challenged on foreign policy, challenged on the economy, challenged on security, and they got to discuss their merits and demerits freely and criticize them and choose between them. And this is what people want from Morocco to Iraq and beyond. And asking for that is not going to destroy the country. That's on the government. So those are nine lessons that I think the world needs to finally let sink in because, to be honest, none of them are new lessons. We've been speaking about uh, the demographic bulge since 2011. The region as a whole is getting younger. It's almost 500 million people. We've known that these regimes have aspirations which they can't achieve. And maybe we'll see some signs of responsibility on the part of the government. I certainly hope so. A good outcome from these protests would be for the regime to loosen its stranglehold on society and give people some breathing space in order to lower the political temperature. They have to allow more freedom of speech and reduce the draconian restrictions on the operation of NGOs, stop detaining people based on crimes of conscience, release political prisoners, cut down on the corruption and ease the repression. That's a minimum if they want to survive this because nobody wants to see the military destroy its own country to hang on to power. But it looks like they're going the other way by rounding up more and more people. At the moment, they're rounding up lawyers as they appear at the police stations and courts to defend their clients. Eight years in, we know how this story ends. Most of our episodes are discussions, so this was a slightly experimental format. I'd love to hear what you think, so please uh, let me know on Twitter, at Gatnash. 
you can find more of our work on arabtyrantmanual.com. And if you'd like to support us to do more of what we do, go to patreon.com slash or check out the Kawekibi Foundation website. We have a backlog of episodes at the moment due to our editing capacity. So if any listeners have a few hours to spare and some basic audio editing skills, we would appreciate the help. I'll catch you next time. Arab Tyrant Manual is a project of Kawekibi Foundation. Thank you.